Hey there, guys and gals, it's me, El Capitan Muerte himself, Captain Death, here to tell you guys about an exciting new announcement I have that I'm going to put online here for a couple of the episodes. We have a new merch store up on Redbubble.com. So, we have a whole slew of designs. If you are... Looking at our SoundCloud right now, the SoundCloud profile, you're going to look on the right-hand side for our About, and underneath, you're going to see Library of Tracks on Mixcloud, Episodes up on YouTube, Follow Us on Facebook, and then a new button that I just added called Merch Store. You click that, it'll lead you right to that portfolio uh, landing page where you can check out all the designs we have uploaded. If you are on our YouTube and you're looking at our channel, you're going to look over at that right right hand side where it says SoundCloud Profile. The farthest on the right button is a red bubble button, and it says Merch Store. If you hover over it, you could get there that way. And lastly, if you were on our Facebook group and you noticed the About uh, that tells you about the group a little bit, you're going to scroll down and see Products, and that's going to be the link right there uh, to lead you over to our Redbubble store www.redbubble.com backslash people backslash El Capitan Muerte. Uh, you know, buy a sticker. It's like three bucks. Have have fun. You know, you do you. Uh, anyways, uh, moving on to the show. Uh, thank you all so much for your patronage and stay spoopy. <laughs> Skeletons and shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul And seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies shriek <laughs> On that note let's, let's jump into this shit Um, I don't even know where to begin really Um, so much stuff has happened In between Your last episode Which I fucking loved and this episode, which I am fucking excited for. Let, like, let me tell you, man, I've been thinking about this fucking story for a long time. I've done research, without ruining anything for myself, I've done research, and this story has a following. And the following spreads up to Hollywood. Apparently, Steven Spielberg's studio, Amblin, bought the rights to this story, Spire in the Woods. And they're calling it a movie that is in development called The Bells. Okay. It's going to be about a kid who experiences his friend dying under an unnatural circumstance, does a little research, connects to a legend folklore of the town, thus involves mayhem, destruction, ghosty ghosts, cool shit. Yeah. So, um, the minute I saw that, um, everyone keep an ear to the ground on The Bells... Hopefully that'll be coming out somewhere in the next three years from Amblin. No director has been announced. Steven Spielberg is producing. And that led me down a rabbit hole to find out what else was in development. Because ever since Channel Zero died, rest in peace, I've been worried that like creepypasta representation in like media was just going to be given up on. Because I will, until the day I die, I will continue saying that Left Right Game deserves to be like a Netflix series. I agree. You know? My God. Like a wow. short one-shot 13-episode, like, couple-million-dollar budget road show wow, movie. that'd be amazing. Oh, it'd be so fucking good. 
It'll be so fucking good. And the format is there. It's ready for it. Uh, the only things I would change is maybe introduce more car caravans, more strange deaths, um, and have the road exist a little bit longer. I, I wouldn't... I would do the Channel Zero thing. I wouldn't just take left-right game and translate it. I would keep the beginning. I would keep the end. Because I think those are the two most important parts. But I would change the middle, like, completely. I would keep... Rob's character and his son in the background and the twists. I would keep that. Um, I would keep. Um, I'd keep some I'd of the keep scary, Blue Jay. scary moments, like the the man, the freaky that they town. Had to pick up. Oh yeah, the hitchhiker. The yeah, hitchhiker. like absolutely. Yeah. Hitchhiker is like an episode two, like needs to happen moment. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the the town in the middle of nowhere, the pleasant town where yep. half the town's dead and the other half is just standing on their lawn. Uh -huh. Like that should happen. The quiet city should happen. But I also think that there's a lot of room for creativity, much yeah. like the, um, the third season of channel zero, which was based off of the search and rescue stories. They kind of turned the stairs in the woods into like a different thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to think that you could do that with like the road of the left, right game. Like instead of like three people dying to like being melted into the road, like maybe dissipate those deaths a little bit, change them up a little and try to find a way to like have mm. the road, kill those people. Okay. You know, I'd maybe introduce one or two more characters, maybe one more car full of people, introduce more deaths. Yeah. Um, you know, the goal would be to kill at least one person per episode after episode one. Yeah. Okay. And then the last episode is just Alice by herself, like driving on that road. Just the last episode. Just the okay. last episode. You know when she has that moral quandary, runs into Rob's um, Rob's kid's wife. Um. She runs into the wife drowned on the side of the road That's right. that the son was looking for, That's went right. back That's onto right. the road to find. And, um, you know, like, her experiencing that level of isolation and, like, coming to, like, seeing something that Rob never got to see himself, like, that would be so much more damaging, you know, if the entire episode is spent, like, her by herself on the road, like, without anyone else. You know, the way it was written. Rob's death would be... Well, spoilers if you haven't listened. But yeah, oh, Rob, you had to have listened yeah, to it. Yeah, Rob's death would be such an oh, emotional... Emo that doesn't even begin to describe... He sacrifices himself, you know? In a show of Left Right Game, his death? Oh my god. It would be the equivalent of the chick in Smoke and Aces, the sniper, who gives her position up to the FBI and gets killed for it in order to protect her partner, who she is secretly in love with. She, like, when she knows that her partner's about to get got, she fires sniper rounds and takes out, like, six FBI agents. But because she does that, she gives away her location, yeah, and then okay. they come up behind her I've in the elevator, and they fucking murk her. Um, she's played by an Academy Award-winning actress, I, I believe, um, from Empire... Um, the actress who plays Cookie. The name escapes me, but she's a really good actress. Um, that role is heartbreaking because she, like, gives up her life for her partner, um, her assassin partner. Um, I feel like it would be very similar. Like, Rob's up on the roof watching Alice drive away, knowing that every shot he fires brings his death closer to him. You yeah. know? That'd be heartbreaking. That's some I Am Legend shit right there. Um... So anyway, this is episode 138 with Tenron Otrin. 
Um, we are continuing Spire in the Woods. Uh, we're going to jump into it in a, in a quick second. Um, but I want to kind of retell a story. I couldn't hold it in. I had to tell Tanron before we started the episode, but I kind of want to retell a story of something that happened earlier this week to me uh, and give a couple shout-outs where shout-outs are due. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, spark it. The first shout-out is for Star Eve. Ooh, fucking Jamie, you have been keeping me so entertained on SoundCloud because I feel like you comment on literally every episode you listen to. I think that's fucking hilarious. You keep doing you, keep listening to the episodes. I'm really glad to have a new fan who's as vocal as you, and um, no, no one else has done that for us, so it's awesome to see someone fangirling about our shit. And then in the same week, I also heard from uh, Kitty, shout out to Kitty, over in New Zealand. Um, she requested that I give up my address or get a P.O. box so she could send me quote-unquote fun shit from New Zealand, to which I had to say, I am sorry, uh, I must decline. Um, However, I'm just throwing it out there, Kitty, I have a couple avenues that I am thinking about going down in order to not necessarily make something from this podcast because that's not what I want to do. You know, we don't make it to episode 138 and I start charging people to listen to the show. That's not, this is always going to be free on every platform. And I don't like Patreon because of the monthly subscription thing. So what I'm looking into is getting a coffee account and um, essentially you buy coffees for like supporting people and it's like one-time payments you just throw some money at someone maybe like three bucks and just say you know keep up the good work champ whenever you feel like it and um i think that's so much more fitting because i don't want to stick anyone i don't want anyone to feel like they are like entitled to the show because they're paying money to listen to it because sometimes i have to take breaks sometimes things happen and get in the way of releases you know i want to keep running with the brevity that i have but i also think think that fuck this is like the fifth or sixth person who's been like can i help pay for something and i'm just like well i don't want the platform to become monetized but i will take donations you know like i'm thinking of that because guess what ever since this shit's been on soundcloud i've been paying for it to be out there i've been producing this shit and putting it out there um on my own dime just some input really that uh money who fucking asked you <laughs> money just is uh, hey tenron can we get a can, get your input yeah, yeah i'll be right there so uh, hey guys so uh some input from uh, tenron notrin is about money really at the end of the day most most important thing so uh it's not been said but selling sex is <laughs> illegal and if you not not in all countries, uh, where where, all countries. where I'm from, where I'm from, <laughs> Kitty uh, is 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 uh is selling your body uh illegal in New Zealand. Comment on this. Comment on this. Let me know. I I wouldn't run for office, but if I did, my certainly my platform would suggest just you know revenue that could could uh, you know yeah. But anyway, uh, Cap, you're I, a real self starter. I think that. This coffee thing is an idea, but if you sold your body for sex, 
that's a great way of not allowing this channel to be monetized and people can support you. The exchange is there. It's equivalent. I just want you to personally... I want you to know this. I may end up... Personally fuck off? I want you to... (laughs) I might end up cutting this, but I want you to know (laughs) that I did sleep with a woman once because she offered to pay for dinner. That's an exchange. Folks, it's happening today. (laughs) Barter your genitalia. What, are we going to make everything illegal about about exchanges of romance and money and sex? It's all all there. Listen, I was was in school. I was really broke. I think she was like a year or two older than me. And she offered to buy dinner on a night where I said I was going to be busy. And it changed my mind completely. And then we ended up having sex. And then I stopped talking to her um that's fine the transaction was made it was final there was no contract you want to know the saddest part was there a receipt i don't even remember what we had for dinner i just know that it happened it might have been sushi honestly which wow. which means it was well earned okay. i perform i performed pretty well well again this goes back to transactionary exchanges and and what's fair, or what should be legal. So, uh, so Kitty, I want to thank you. Your uh, your post on our Facebook group was uh, very uh, well-liked. I've shared it with a lot of people who've been on the show. Um, they're all very proud um, that we have listeners on the other side of the fucking planet, which I think is it's just one of those things. And she, uh, in the post, um, brought up a, a couple really fun facts that I like. Um, first off, she said Frowns was her favorite character on the show, and I have to start by saying don't let him know that, (laughs) because it will go to his head, and he will be harder to fucking wrangle in now that I brought him back from the Great White North. (laughs) Frowns has returned, he will be on an episode soon, I promise you. Um, it might even be literally the next episode, <laughs> 139, might be Frounce's return. <laughs> anyway, um, fact number two, she said, listening to the show is kind of like me having conversations with all of my fractured personalities, uh-huh. and I find that very funny, because I'd like to think my friends are an extension of myself. When they are embarrassing, I feel embarrassed. When they are funny, I feel funny. When when they are sad, I am sad. Um, when they are happy, I am happy. We are a very empathetic bunch, uh, f- emphasis on pathetic bunch, and... Um, the idea of, like, um, I don't know, like, frowns being my latent homosexuality, you being kind of my paranoid anxiety conspiracy theory side, yeah, you, you have, know, crying multi- Hawaiian being my black side. I, you're suggesting you're you're the one that's multidimensional, you're the one that has meaning. Cannibal Siren us, being my vaginal side, I'm the, sure she likes the that. The rest of us have... I pretty much told her that she is a girl version of me, and she took it as a compliment, so I think that's great. You're, you're suggesting this is exactly what you just said. I'm an egotistical you, fucking maniac. You matter while the rest of us don't. You are expendable. <laughs> Replaceable, expendable, deserving of death. Folks. I can do this show by myself. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, and I have. Oh, my god. But I think... You know, 
obviously I didn't ever want to do this show by myself or else I would have a channel like Mr. Creepypasta or Creeps McPasta, you know, where I just read and that's it. I never wanted to be like an audiobook show. I literally wanted to be like a talk show with personality and uh, fucking Kitty uh, compared us to last podcast on the left and I almost cried because being compared to like my inspiration for this show is heart-wrenching. That is so... I am so grateful to hear something like that. Wow. And, um... I think she said one more thing. Um... She thanked me for pushing her onto Channel Zero, and I can never push that show enough. I am so sad to see it gone, but it will live forever on the cloud, so everyone should download that shit. Get on it immediately. Um, who knows? Maybe if DVD sales go into, like, um... What do they call it? Cult classic territory? Maybe it'll have a revival at some point. A lot of shit is coming back from the dead on different platforms nowadays. You never know if Channel Zero gets picked up by, like, Crypt TV or, like, Shudder or something. That would be dope. Um, so yeah, you know, sci-fi doesn't want to push the buck anymore. Maybe we could find a different platform for it. That's the type of thing I will- that's why I will continue to push Channel Zero whenever anyone brings it up. So anyway, we are gonna... Is there anything you want to talk about? Um, uh, well... You finished Hill House. What'd I you, did, What you did know, you think of Hill House? I chose to watch that show with my mom. Yes. My mom, I thought, would really appreciate it. Did she? Um, you know... Oh, yeah, 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 she, she loved it. Um, I think watching it with a family member made the show more emotional for me. Because... I watched. I think I watched it the first time uh, by myself. Watching the show by myself, I, I already could tell that it was going to be... I, I just, yeah. I don't think the impact would have been as great for me personally without sure. having watched it with somebody else. <coughs> but especially that person being my mom. It's a very family-oriented show. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, in some ways the relationships between characters didn't remind me of my relationships with my family, but it... it, it it would remind me of, <clears throat> excuse me, it reminded me of um, potential, you know. I'm sorry, can I conflicts. say something really quick? Yeah. I think a bug literally just flew into my throat. Are you kidding? It was like the scene from Kung Pao where the, the where the grandpa keeps trying to get up, and every time he does, a, fl uh, a moth flies into his mouth and he starts coughing. If I if I cough out a, a live bug right now, oh my I'm god, gonna what think, is happening? I'm gonna think I'm possessed. Oh my god! <coughs> I need to get out of here. The spell has taken over me. I I don't know. Do we know what's going on in this story? I, when we think I about remember. it, like, well, yes, we know what is happening. We know that oh. the kid in high school has been talking to a couple of his friends about what happened to their friend um, when he, he killed himself in a car on fire. And the more we dig into him, the more he was obsessed with a story about a local folklore mm -hmm. about uh, a, a guy who killed his wife and her lover and made like animatronic statues out of them in a clock tower um, in a clock tower um, and they proceeded to I think for like a full week just kind of decay clacking the rhythm of the clock on every mm -hmm. hour and that's just kind of gross but I also want to know where the fuck they're going with it, because how could something like that drive someone mad? I'm just trying to think to myself, like, is this, like, a woman in black thing going on? Like, are Ugh. these... 
I I love that movie. Yeah. Well, first yeah, off, the, the the Daniel Radcliffe remake I think is great. The the pervasive nature that they present dread in that movie and that like atmosphere it's killer man like you you never know when something is going to happen in in that movie no matter how many times you watch it because it's just like she is just vengeful spirit 101 she will do anything to fuck with you at that moment and part of me is like what's creepier than a five night at freddy's fucking human being just fucking haunting the shit out of you you know, an animatronic, fucked-up zombie person just fucking following you and shit. To the point that it makes you want to kill yourself. You know, like, how nuts is that? I it's almost like a metaphor for depression. Wow. Well, <coughs> Jesus. <coughs> Here it comes. <laughs> oh. uh, is there anything you wanted to add about the story? About this story, the Spire in the Woods. Um, Spire in the Woods. Uh... Yeah, I, I have no idea. I have no idea where this is gonna go. Um, um, I mean, uh, well, that's a lie. That's just a dirty old lie I just told. Of course, I have ideas, but I'd rather. I guess I'd rather. I'd rather wait to see if any of your predictions, your mental yeah, predictions, come true. I think so, because <clears throat> they're not really predictions. They're just like I can understand where this is going. I sound completely like like talking out of my ass right now, but. No, but, like, it makes sense that you in your head, you kind of have these ideas and notions where things may go, but you also don't, nothing, like, it's just... <clears throat> yeah. I would love this to go supernatural, like, ghosts and shit. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen any of that. I'm just implying that that would be, you know, the most exciting thing for me. I think after stuff like Baraska and Left Right Game with very literal mechanisms at work... I, I would like to see something behind the curtain. I would like to see something actually haunting, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, if Bedtime was a successful story, and I, I don't mean to dig on Bedtime. A lot of people like Bedtime, but I feel like Bedtime is, like, my my past but no regard, you know? Like, it did what the story needed to do, but I'm not gonna, like, hold it up on a pedestal. Sure. You know, like, I want to see something that pushes the envelope just a little bit more without doing all of the you know, cliche stepping points. Like, because part one is was so fucking good and part two was such a fucking disappointment. You're just left with this kind of mm -hmm. weird amalgamation where the guy tried to do, like, a Stephen King it thing with, like, a ghost, but it turned out to be, like, a demon ghost. I don't know, man. It was fucking weird. Um, yeah, Spire in the Woods could go so many fucking ways. What if, um, what if it's just madness? You know, the bells imply, you know, the, the clock implies that there might be a, a cosmic horror type of element to this, where it's like, a, you know, Mouth of Madness style, the, the story, and you go find the tower, and the tower just imprints itself on your brain and kind of drives you mad. That's... And then you kill yourself, you know? Almost like a induced schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's fun, right? I would rather Supernatural. Right! Yeah, same. I mean, ghosts. Yeah. Ghosts. Um, yeah, let's... You want to dig into this shit? Let's go. <laughs> yes. Right now. I think so. Jeez. All right. This is going to be part three. Rob had reached the first island. That's right. He was swimming in the middle of the night. This is his story. 
He'd been searching fruit. F- this is his story. This is the story about how Rob died, or went crazy, essentially. He'd been searching fruitlessly for nearly 40 minutes when he heard them. The bells. Being so much closer now, they were even clearer. He fell to his knees, letting their sensation, their warmth, wash over him. For a moment, he knew bliss. The bells rolled back like the ocean at low tide. Rob found himself shivering on the ground. He could hear nothing but frogs and crickets. He rose on unsteady legs, sure of only one thing. In an hour, he'd be there. He'd be standing before the spire. He'd hear the bells, feel them up close. He ran to the shore and dove into the waters. Dove. (laughs) Like a bird. Rob emerged from the reservoir onto the rocky bank of the second and far larger island. He stumbled barefoot through the woods, increasingly aware of how dark it was beneath the trees. As the bell's siren's call faded in his mind, he began to doubt himself. The island was nearly two miles long and half a mile across. He could search all night and never find the damn thing. But the bells chimed once more. He turned to face them, and there it was. In the center of a grove of dead trees, the spire jutted out from the ground like a pike set to receive a charge. Its white paint was oddly untouched by age. Small windows adorned each of its sides, framed by the dead trees and bathed in moonlight. It called. Unable to resist their song, yet too overwhelmed by their warmth to walk, Rob crawled to the spire like an infant to its mother. Reminds me of how, um, fucking the little sister ends up at the house, Mm. in House on Haunted Hill. It just kind of sets a spell on her, and she ends up going back. Mm -hmm. What, I forgot the character's name. The youngest. Wow, I'm I'm blanking myself. Nat Natter? No. <laughs> Why am I forgetting? They were twins. I know Luke was the boy. Wow, I'm blanking. Well. It's alright. He pushed against the slats of the window and they gave way and he squirmed his way inside. Are you going in this place? I'm not personal this place. I wouldn't even be on that island in the middle of the night. <laughs> well, first of all, I hate I hate water at night. I hate church-looking things, so I'd never go near a stained glass window. You ever really, you ever really like look at a body of water at night? Oh, it's creepy as shit. Absolutely, that's that's absolutely. That I used to go scariest, camping up at the lake, man. Like one of the scariest things. You being really out there at night is really fucking nuts. Yeah. Ocean. Imagine. You ever been out in the middle of the ocean at night? Dude, I have done a night dive as a scuba diver, what? and it was the most mind-blowing Dude, fucking thing. I don't think I could ever do that. The moonlight is the reason I was comfortable. Because in the Caribbean, with clear fucking skies, the moon is just illuminating fucking uh, everything. That makes sense, yeah. So, you know, don't go any lower than 40 feet, and you'll have clear vision. Yeah, you still look down and it's just pitch black. No. No, some reefs are just 40 feet deep. So you're just gliding along the ground looking at all the fun little fishes and shit. Okay. I have only seen <clears throat> eel and octopus at night. They don't really come out during the day. They're, they're much easier at hiding during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, this place was super cool to go diving, man. Mm-hmm. They did a two-tank night. I only did the first tank because it was too much of a pussy. 
It was scary. Yeah, I mean, bodies of water at night, though, freaking out. Oh, yeah, man. So yeah, I man. would never swim. I would never have swam to this, this spire. Absolutely. This island. I also wouldn't because I'm lazy. Rod landed on the top of a staircase. As the bells continued to chime, he pulled his shuddering body down the stairs, deeper and deeper into the enveloping darkness within, until he lost himself once more in the ethereal sounds and their radiating warmth. Once the silence returned, Rob strained in vain to see the air was humid and black as ink. He could feel wood, dank and rotting, pressed against his bare calves. It gave him the impression he was sitting Indian-style, instead of a living thing like Jonah in the whale. Slowly, Rob rose to his feet. He held his hands out in front of him and groped blindly. That, that's fucking nightmarish to me. He hoped he'd find a wall or a banister to the stairs, anything that would give him a clue about his surroundings, but instead he found nothing, forcing him to shuffle deeper into the impermeable darkness. He outstretched his fingers and recoiled from the soft surface they encountered. What was it? He shook as he reached out, letting his hands land once more on the chest-high object in front of him. It was wrapped in cloth. It only extended out to about the width of his shoulders. The cloth hung loose over something hard that his hands couldn't identify. Rods? Dowels? His probing fingers traced up the object's outer edge until he felt something he could identify. And he froze. His fingers were in the eye socket of a skull. His thumb rested on the teeth. The bells rang again, if only inside Rob, as his mind's eye showed him the endless dance. He'd sat there in the dark, his unseeing eyes transfixed by the clockmaker's wife as she was dragged on her post through the twirling gauntlet of Union automatons. He saw her alive and dead. The blush of youth, the maggots of decay, twitch and scream and moan as her body was pierced by countless bayonets. He saw her face as she ran the endless race. Rob shrank and shriveled, collapsing to the floor like a wounded animal. He crawled and clawed his way back, 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 until he hit the wall, and even then he didn't stop, but pushed against it with all his strength, hoping to retreat further. His flailing limbs struck a step, the first of many, with what little control he had over his frenzied mind, bolted for the surface, and an escape from the moist pit and the clockmaker's wife. Rob scrambled up the twisting stairs on all fours like a dog. He tore his way through the window and collapsed on the ground. The fresh air felt alien in his lungs, as if it were his first breath. He took two more as he lay there on the ground before realizing that although he hadn't had a clue what time it was, he couldn't be there when the bells chimed. He ran and swam. He ran and swam and ran and swam and didn't look back again until he was in the car. Fletch put his face in his hands. I shouldn't have let him go alone. So you believe him? I tried to say it in a comforting as tone as I could, but I think it came out a little accusatory and Fletch hesitated. Yeah. Yeah, I do. 
I had so many more questions I wanted to ask, but I didn't think Fletch could take it. He choked up several times while relaying Rob's story, and the way his shoulders were slumped reminded me of the way Rob's parents had looked at their son's funeral. I should have gone with him, he said without looking up at me. I let it lie. As I left Fletch's house, every hair on my body was standing on end, but at that point, as much as I wanted to, I still wasn't ready to accept the story of the spire in the woods, not at face value. When we've studied the fall of the House of Usher in English earlier that year, Miss Thorne had made it a point to draw our attention to two of Poe's opium references and to how Roderick Usher displayed symptoms of withdrawal. She explained that, Post stories frequently incorporated both blatant and subtle references to intoxicants and hallucinogens in order to enhance the sense of phantasmagoria and help more skeptical readers suspend their disbelief. I knew very little about depression and even less about antidepressants, but at the time, I didn't think it was beyond the realm of possibility that Robert Kennan's encounter with the clockmaker's wife had more to do with the sudden onset of a major depressive episode than with a dead woman. I spent the night reading about depression, tricyclics, MAO inhibitors, and SSRIs. There were no answers, just endless possibilities. It wasn't unheard of for major depressive episodes to be accompanied by delusions or even outright hallucinations. Psychotic disorders were sometimes less obvious in patients whose presenting problem was depression. Hallucinations were rare side effects of SSRIs, MAO inhibitors could cause serotonin syndrome, which could cause hallucinations. And that was before getting into the countless drug interactions, which without knowing exactly what Rob had been taking, I couldn't even begin to map it out. I knew Scary Carrie would love to hear every last detail Fletch had told me about the spire in the woods, but on Tuesday morning I just didn't feel like tracking her down. I wanted to talk to Alina. The ride into school hadn't been as awkward as I anticipated, Fletch was quieter than usual, and I was content to stare out my window and daydream about what I was going to tell Alina. I wondered what she'd think about Fletch's story and whether or not I should gloss over my own doubts. I also wondered if she'd cry. I feel embarrassed, even all these years later admitting it, but a part of me was hoping she would. Then I'd have an excuse to hug her again. I could be dependable. Comforting boyfriend material. It was the kind of fantasy that marked me as a beta male, the sort of guy who, even in his own daydreams, couldn't think of a single reason he deserved the girl. I roved the junior's hallways and the cafeteria, but couldn't find Alina anywhere. I heard from DeLuca that she'd called out sick, and I spent the rest of the day in a funk. Carrie and I had gym seventh period, the last class of the day. It was too cold to go out on the field, so we just chose between three or four indoor activities. Ordinarily, I'd have opted for floor hockey, the only gym class activity I had ever enjoyed, but I felt obligated to update Carrie on what I'd learned about Rob and the Spire, so I joined her in the auxiliary gym for a little ping pong, a game I had no idea she was so good at. Or it could have happened exactly like that. Carrie said, acing me for the third straight time. I was surprised that Scary Carrie wasn't as skeptical as I was. I mean, sure, Carrie absolutely believed in ghosts, and of course I desperately wanted to, but we weren't completely credulous about every story we'd heard. We didn't relish wandering around graveyards and old buildings for no good reason. We weren't looking to kill time. We did it because we wanted to find something. We wanted to pull back the curtain and glimpse the grandeur of creation. 
We wanted to feel small in the presence of the infinite, and know if only for a moment there was more than food, sex, and the petty minutiae of social interaction. What it came down to was that while I believed Fletch, and I believed that Fletch believed Rob, it didn't follow that I believed Rob. It was the difference between lying and just being wrong. Carrie and I had developed criteria for identifying the more promising leads, and the spire in the woods had a lot going against it. Second-hand accounts, stories with an undercurrent of social control, witnesses with a history of mental illness, these were red flags, and Rob's story had all of them. You want to check it out? It's kind of cold for a swim. I just want to see if we can hear the bells. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. It's kind of far. Of course there was another reason I was reluctant to head all the way out to Quabbin Reservoir with Scary Carrie. She looked at me like I had just insulted her. She knew precisely what my other reason was. Our last ghost hunting expedition had been a disaster, a very personal disaster. Carrie was old for our year. She turned 16 at the tail end of freshman year and had gotten her license the very first day of summer break, and it was perfect, save for one thing, no car. Carrie's parents were divorced, and her dad moved to New Jersey for a job. He paid his alimony and child support every month, but he just wasn't a very wealthy man. Carrie's mom had never gone to college. She had to work full-time at the deli counter at our local market basket just to make ends meet, which meant most days she had the car. But at night, when the store was closed, Carrie had access to the world's oldest, crappiest station wagon. For the most part, Carrie's newfound freedom changed her life very little. Mainly, her trips involved picking up the members of her small group of friends and delivering them to Dan Bergen's to watch anime and old horror movies in his basement. We only hung out twice that summer. Both times, Scary Carrie picked me up in what I called the Ecto-1, and we went ghost hunting. Our first trip was to Blood Cemetery. That's how we discovered the story of Abel Blood was a steaming load. We dressed in all black, par for the course in Carrie's case, and brought flashlights, wax paper, and crayons. I also took the silver crucifix my parents had given me as a first communion present, and my mother's Bible, just in case we saw something. God isn't real. <laughs> it was fun scrambling over the old stone wall, sneaking through the cemetery with our flashlights held low, trying not to step on anybody's grave. Even after seeing that the year of death didn't line up, we still checked out the curve where the ghost of the little girl supposedly ran out in front of the passing cars. The blind curve was indeed full of skid marks. It also had about 20 feet in front of it a deer crossing sign. Two or three weeks later, we went to charity auction at the rec center and slipped up to the stairs to the attic. The stairs squeaked beneath our feet, and even though at worst we'd just be thrown out of the rec center, we were terrified of getting caught. The attic hadn't changed in the seven or so years since my last visit. A couple of card tables housed bins full of crafting materials, a pair of filing cabinets sat against the back wall gathering dust, and most importantly of all, despite it being June, there were still cold spots. We'd just stand outside of one, reach an arm in, and try to define the boundary of the warm and cold air. It was tricky. The shift in temperature wasn't as great as I remembered from when I was a kid, and there were no hard, fine edges between the hot and cold air. The temperature just seemed to bleed from one area into another, like brine in an estuary. I experimented sticking my crucifix into the heart of the cold spot and felt nothing. If anything, it felt like the cold spots were fading away, and Carrie suggested we try talking to the spirit of Jennifer Wilkins while we still could. 
and I shrugged. After you. We'd forsaken most of our ghost hunting kit, as it would have been awfully conspicuous carrying around a bri- a bribal. A bible and a couple of flashlights. <laughs> it is a bribal. A bribal. <laughs> Shit, give us your money, yo. I still had my crucifix, but I doubted it be necessary. The stories of the Silver Spectre were all quite tame. We had, however, brought a couple of sticks of incense, which we lit with a very old Zippo that had once belonged to my grandfather. Carrie had bought the incense from a New Age store, the sort of place you'd shop at if you were inclined to believe in neo-paganism or healing crystals. The saleswoman told her it was supposed to make it easier for spirits to pass into our realm, but to me, it just smelled like sandalwood. Carrie spoke in a lilting tone. Jennifer, are you here with us? I burst out laughing, and Carrie went beet red. She punched me in the arm and whispered for me to be quiet, pointing to the floor where beneath our feet the auction was taking place, and Carrie tried again. Jennifer, if you can hear me, give us a sign. We stood still, in absolute silence, waiting for an answer. It came in the form of an industrial air conditioner, mounted the ceiling of the floor below us, cycling on. A few gaps in the floorboards lined up perfectly with one of the AC's large vents, and we couldn't stop laughing as the spirit of Jennifer Wilkins returned the cold spots to full force. Once we'd regained our composure, Carrie and I decided to head over to Bickford's for a bite to eat while we conducted the post-mortem of our latest failure. Now a deer crossing sign and an air conditioner don't necessarily disprove that the Blood Cemetery and our town rec center are haunted, but they certainly made us feel rather foolish. So while I gorged myself on Eggs Benedict, which I had only recently discovered, Carrie nursed a cup of coffee and we started tossing around ideas for other expeditions. No place local. Gotta stay objective. It can't be some place we've grown up thinking is haunted. You just don't want anyone we know hearing your little sing-talking-to-the-spirit-world voice. Carrie, in mock anger, reached over, grabbed a home fry off my plate, and threw it at me. It had taken her a long time to get comfortable with me teasing her. I guess after a lifetime of being mocked about her weight and appearance, the idea that it was the only way I expressed affection took some getting used to. There were a few places in and around Boston we wanted to check out, but most of them were landmarks or buildings that were still in use. Neither of us were eager to get arrested, particularly not Carrie, who was going to have a hard enough time getting into college. So Boston was out, and most of Lowell, too. We dismissed a couple of nearby leads. Uh, the Gilson Road Cemetery, which had no actual history surrounding it, just a hodgepodge of random urban legends, and uh, the Blue Lady out of Wilton, New Hampshire, who sounded somewhat promising, but was most frequently sighted during harvest moons, which we wouldn't get until later in September. Eventually, we settled on the Eunice Williams-covered bridge in Greenfield, Massachusetts. It had everything going for it. A traumatic death, consistent sightings, no air conditioning. The only downside was that, for us, Greenfield was a solid two-hour drive each way, and that was if the MapQuest directions were up to date, and that's a mighty big if. I didn't see Carrie again that summer, life just got in the way. For Carrie, it was difficult to work around her mom's schedule, especially after a tiny little incident she had backing out of a space at the mall resulted in her losing her driving privileges for a month. While for me, it was the pool Christy McDowell's parents had put in that June. 
While my feelings for Christy and our mutual female friends were mostly platonic, I was 15 and they were in bikinis. By comparison, ghost huntings just didn't seem quite as exciting. Knowing how my friends felt about her, I never invited Carrie to tag along, and of course, in fairness to me, pool parties weren't exactly her cup of tea. When school started up again in the fall, Carrie and I resumed talking about our trip to Greenfield, but it wasn't until Robert Kennan killed himself and I made an effort to spend more time with her that we actually got around to going. Carrie picked me up early one Friday evening in mid-November. Mrs. Peterson had opened the store that morning and would be closing the next day, meaning we had Ecto-1 all night. We just needed to get the car back before she woke up, and she'd be none the wiser. Driving around with friends was still novel at that point in my life. The two hours passed by in a blur of jokes and gossip and screaming along to what little music Carrie and I could agree on. She used to have this mixtape dominated by Nine Inch Nails and Rage Against the Machine that was a staple at our time in the Act 01. I think we listened to it straight through two and a half times that night. We only got turned around once and arrived at the Eunice Williams covered bridge absolutely pumped. We pulled into the bridge, cut the motor, honked once, and waited for Eunice. Eunice Williams was not a resident of Greenfield. She actually lived in a nearby Deerfield back in late 1600s, and at the time, Deerfield was the northwesternmost outpost of New England, deep in the heart of the former Pocumtuck Nation. Before the settlers had arrived in Deerfield, the Pocumtuck had already been weakened by European diseases and war with the Mohawk people. When the settlers and the Pocumtuck clashed over resources, the settlers easily drove the remaining Pocumtuck from their land. How many times will I have to say this word? <laughs> the Pocumtuck. The Pocumtuck, which is spelled Pocumtuck. Maybe I should just say it that way. Uh, the Pocumtuck, however, were not ready to admit defeat. They allied themselves with the French and other French-aligned first people in Canada, and in 1704 led an offensive raid against Deerfield's English settlers. The French and Native Americans killed 56 settlers and burned much of the town to the ground. They captured over 100 survivors and forced them to march through brutal winter conditions into Quebec. The march would take months. Among the captured survivors was a Eunice Mather Williams, her husband, Minister John Williams, and five of their seven children. Her infant daughter and six-and-a-half-year-old son were both killed during the raid, but John and Eunice were determined to be strong for their other children and fellow captives. The Williamses quoted scripture, led the group in prayer, and took turns carrying their younger children until they reached the Green River. Eunice fell during the crossing. Despite having survived her plunge, a Pocumtuck warrior decided that Eunice's exposure to the icy water had weakened her too much to continue the march, so he, so he hacked her to pieces in front of her husband and their remaining children. What the Pocumtuck? <laughs> Legend has it that Eunice appears on the bridge over the waters where she was killed, asking any mortals she finds there of news about her children and husband. You know what? <laughs> what? I'm never going to forget Pocumtuck. <laughs> because I, I'm thinking, like, a character would be like, Quick, Poe, come on, Tuck. <laughs> <laughs> come on, and Tuck, Poe. No, like, ejaculate on Tuck. Yeah. Tuck is another person. Yeah. And he's asking Poe to come on, Tuck. Yeah, man. 
quick, Pooh. Come on, Why do I sound like they're members of the Beatles? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, why don't you get out of here and come on in. Pooh, come Wait, talk. Po. you got to come on talk, Pooh. Pooh, come talk. You know Poe? Poe Dameron? <coughs> oh, fuck, fuck, <laughs> shit. He's got to Finn, come. Finn's already there coming on his face. Quick, Poe. Come on, Finn. This is, getting, this is getting good. Locals say she can be summoned simply by cutting your engine and honking your horn. We'd been sitting there in the Ecto-1 with the engine off and no heat when a thought occurred to me. Why would the ghost of a woman who died a couple of centuries before the invention of the automobile respond to a horn being honked? I could see the gears turning in Scary Carrie's head as she processed the anachronism. I had to ask you something. <laughs> yeah. What about this sentence bothers you the most? Boy, I can't wait to shove Ray's lightsaber up my ass. <laughs> what about that sentence bothers you? Please answer the question. Oh, man. I'll repeat it. Boy, I sure can't wait to shove Ray's lightsaber up my ass. <coughs> I think the idea of ass and Ray in the same sentence is just like inherently sexual so I'd say the fact that you're blasting it up your ass I is think, probably the worst part I think that says a lot about you but I think a lot of people would answer oh well it's not raised lightsaber <laughs> oh fuck I mean it kind of is now I don't know well I don't That's know why where I just we thought disagree. of that <laughs> I was stuck on I'm so sorry Shit. yeah we gotta poke up oh my god <laughs> Asthmatic, folks. Jesus. And I have a bug in my throat. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> well, this is a show, and we're reading a story. And <laughs> well, maybe she's just... Fuck. <laughs> I laughed as Gary turned on the car to get the heat going again. And you couldn't have thought of this before we drove out here? Well, doesn't mean the bridge isn't haunted, just that Eunice probably isn't a car gal. <laughs> we waited for a bit, then got out of the car and poked around the bridge on foot. I've always liked covered bridges. No, they're fucking creepy. It's like Sleepy Hollow one-on-one, -on -one, dude. It's like, not, not fucking cool. Fuck, he even says it in the next sentence! I've always liked covered bridges, ever since seeing The Legend of Sleepy Hollow cartoon as a kid. And there's a nifty little plaque on this one that tells the whole story of Eunice Williams. Well, that's kind of fucking creepy. We scrambled down to the banks of the river. It's not exactly the Mississippi, but it was easy to see how difficult it would have been to ford, especially under the strange circumstances Eunice was facing. I skipped a few pebbles, a difficult feat in fast-moving water before we got cold and decided to return to the car. Maybe it was the increasingly likely prospect that another of our missions was going to prove to be a waste, or maybe it was just the hour and the warm air of the heater blasting in our face and making us sleepy, but whatever the cause, our energy was fading fast and our conversations had turned serious. Well, serious by high school standards. Do you think Kim Murray is pretty? Kim Murray. I did not think she was pretty. But that put me in a precarious position. Physically, Kim had her faults, but objectively speaking, she was significantly more attractive than Carrie, a girl drew to Luca, 
once described with what was, for Drew, a considerable amount of sympathy as unfortunate-looking. Carrie shifted in her seat to face me. I don't know, never gave it much thought, I guess. Why? We were at Dan's the other night, and, uh... Well, she was talking about how much she likes knowing that guys masturbate while thinking about her. Yeah, I don't think this is a topic of conversation I want to pursue. <clears throat> and that's what I said. It's kind of gross. There was a pause, and when Carrie spoke again, her voice was caught in her throat. And then Kim... Then Kim said, well... Well, then I guess you're lucky you don't have to worry about anyone doing it over you. And my cheeks burned with embarrassment. I didn't know what to say. I never imagined Carrie would share her sexual insecurities with me, in part because I never thought of her in sexual terms. On some level, I don't think it ever fully processed for me that Carrie was a girl, like Alina or Christy. That's not to say I was confused about her gender identity, but that, because I found her unattractive, my mind had neutered her, had significantly reduced her as a human being. Carrie started to cry, and I leaned over to give her a hug, and she let a few hushed sobs out into my shoulders. I patted her on the back. At some point, she stopped crying, and it took me a second to notice, but what I thought was her taking a shuddering breath, or maybe just a tear-covered cheek sliding over my skin, was actually Carrie kissing my neck. I wanted to leap into the back seat to lurch away from Carrie and retreat into the furthest recesses of Ecto-1. I wanted to throw open my door and sprint to the nearest house and demand that its occupants permit to shower, but I couldn't do that. As revolted as I was that my actions and intentions had been so wildly misconstrued, Carrie was still my friend and she was vulnerable and she didn't deserve that. I froze, hoping she realized I wasn't reciprocating. The nuzzling and kissing continued. I guess she didn't, or maybe she didn't realize that it was a red flag. But we never spoke about what happened in Greenfield. Either way, she needed a clear stop sign. I put my hands on her shoulders and gently pushed myself away from her. She got the message. I just... I don't... I don't think of you like that. I had trouble spitting it out, and she nodded. We're friends. Uh-huh. The trip home was one of the longest car rides of my life, and Carrie never turned on the radio. The only words out of my mouth were the turns I called out off our MapQuest directions. I felt shallow, I think we both knew that I'd only say that we're friends to soften the blow. I wouldn't have dismissed the affections of any other of my female friends so readily, even Chrissy McDowell, whom I'd been friends since the third grade, I would never have pushed away like that. The following Monday, I made it a point to talk to Carrie in class like nothing happened, and she played along for a bit, but then asked for a little space, and frankly, I was relieved to give it to her. I only told a couple people about Scary Carrie kissing my neck, DeLuca thought it was hilarious. He wasn't the most sensitive guy in the world. Christy was a bit more sympathetic, she reminded me I was entitled to have my tastes, and I appreciated hearing it, but it still felt like shit. I had to set out to make Carrie feel better about herself, and had done nothing of the kind, 
and I never thought of myself as the sort of guy who'd judge a girl based on her looks, but apparently I was. Alina didn't return to school for a whole week after our last conversation. She told everyone who asked that she had the flu, but later confessed to me that she couldn't take being surrounded by people. Too noisy, too overwhelming, too many eyes staring at her. She needed to be alone. I didn't see her at lunch that day or ever again. The anxiety she felt being surrounded by people was at its worst when she was trying to eat. So her parents arranged for her to eat in her guidance counselor's office. And when I found out, I knew it was good for Alina, but I couldn't help but feel like my days would be a little drearier without being able to see her across the cafeteria. Her wild hair, that smirk if it ever returned. And that was to say nothing of the wonder that years of tracking Cross County had done for her legs. I finally caught up with her on Friday morning and she was at her locker. To cut down on the amount of time she had to spend jammed between chatty classmates, Alina had taken to cramming every book and binder she'd need until lunch into her backpack. And she looked like a freshman. Hey, Alina. She didn't look up. Oh, hey. I dropped down next to where she was crouching and lowered my voice. I spoke with Fletch. Alina froze. I couldn't tell if she was nervous or excited. She took a couple of breaths as she turned towards me. Did you see it? Yeah. Basically said the same thing as yours. She deflated, but I continued. But then he told me what happened. You gonna be at lunch? She bit her lower lip as she considered for a second. No. <laughs> You fucking, you slut. You're fucking asking for it. Mm -hmm. Daddy's, uh, sorry. Just... <laughs> oh, well, we could. Um, what do you have last period? Jim. Can you skip it? I've never cut a class in my life. Absolutely. Bite slip again. <laughs> Bite slip and oof. You want to take the way, champ? <coughs> Here we go. Part four. I didn't have any classes with Fletch and rarely saw him in the halls, but I had two classes with Drew DeLuca and he had lunch the same period as Fletch, so I had him pass along that I wouldn't need a ride. When sixth period let out, I made my way over to the parking lot where Alina was waiting for me next to her blue 98 Beetle. We got in, blasted the heat. Unlike Fletch's ancient Civic, Alina's Beetle actually warmed up pretty quick. Everything but the silence was comfortable. Do you... Do you want to get right into it? Alina looked at me out of the corner of her eyes. They were so blue. She shook her head. Not while I'm driving. We rode in silence until we pulled up in front of a good-sized colonial house. Is this okay? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I just, I, I don't want to talk about it in public. It's totally fine. Alina looked relieved as she hit the garage door opener. It was like she thought bringing me over her house was really putting me out. Getting out of the car, I noticed the garage was otherwise empty. We were alone. Abby, an aging golden retriever that the Amines apparently didn't kennel, greeted us with her tail wagging and her leash in her mouth. I have to take her out, make herself at home. Just being inside Alina's house felt so intimate. Identity is everything to a teenager, and to bring someone else into your home was to expose a part of you that was beyond your control. It was laying bare the environment that had produced you. 
When I had first entered Fletch's house, his discomfort was evident. His house was just a place he passed through to get to his room. For Scary Carrie, her house was a source of shame. Mrs. Peterson's small, ill-kept home was a constant reminder to Carrie, not just of her parents' failed marriage, but of her, her mother's lack of achievement, lack of education. They were both stuck there, in a house that smelled of deli meats and the water that feta cheese was packed in. <laughs> a smell that started in Mrs. Peterson's work clothes, but now infused everything they owned. I entered Alina's house with the same reverence I would a church. It had a feeling to it that put you in the mood to sip hot chocolate and watch the snowfall. There were candles and tea lights on the table and holiday-themed knick-knacks on the walls. The piney scent of a Christmas tree filled the air. And as I collapsed onto their overstuffed couch, it occurred to me that for the first time all day, I felt relaxed. After she returned, Alina led me downstairs into the game room, a finished basement dominated by a full-sized pool table. She offered me a soda from the mini-fridge behind the wet bar, and then we sat down on the love seat in front of a big screen TV. Alina stared at me while I spoke. I stared back. It was impossible to look anywhere else. I recounted the story Fletch had told me, as faithfully as I could. All the while, I was very conscious of where her legs were in relation to mine. They tugged at me as if they had gravity. This is okay. Come on now. I know physics. I don't know, man. As a kid, I was a horny little devil. So yeah, like, as if they have no matter gravity. talking about about you know, dead yeah. kids and spell you know, spooky stories. I was still like thinking about what was in. You as know, if her legs had gravity. In her Good pants. Lord. But to describe it as if the legs having gravity. That's just. It's got that pull on you, man. Yeah, gravitational pull. You say gravitational pull. <laughs> Anyway. Oh, the physics bother you. Yeah. Yes, the writing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, well, she, she, she seemed fine the whole time I talked, but the moment I was done, she began gasping for air, like she'd been holding her breath, or as if I had choked her. Um, I made that last part up, guys. Uh, <laughs> she liked being choked. And then, uh, yeah, and then the sobbing started. I was quick to close the gap between us. I held her for several minutes while her slender frame shook and quivered. Jesus, F. When she regained her composure, she slowly withdrew to her, to her end of the love seat. Oh, God, I'm, I'm sorry. She said, wiping her eyes with her sleeve. Don't be. I'm such a mess. I feel ashamed when I'm happy and like a victim when I'm ashamed. It takes everything I've got just to keep it together. It's exhausting. Have you talked to anyone? Seen a... You know. Yeah, but she won't give me anything. That's not a bad thing. So you don't believe any of it? Her right leg began bouncing up and down on the ball of her foot. I thought you were Mr. Ghost Hunter. I scoffed. The corner of her mouth twitched as if she were about to smile, and for a fleeting second I felt connected to her. To the old Alina. I didn't run around telling everybody I met why I cared so much about ghost stories. I didn't wear anything that personal on my sleeve, but I told Alina. She listened and nodded and understood me. Can I ask you something? She nodded. Why does it matter to you if the widower's clock is real? I need them to be wrong about me. 
The people who stare at me in the halls blame me, like Fletch and John Murphy. Fletch's just hurting. He doesn't blame you, not really. Yes, he does. Everybody does. All they get are these little snippets about how much Rob loved me. I've heard them talk about it. They say I thought I was better than him because I live in a big house or because he wasn't a jock or because he was nerdy. He loved me and I was a bitch for rejecting him. Alina pulled her legs up to her chest and hugged her knees. I remember being struck by how she, much she looked like a little girl. What the fuck? Jesus. It seemed strange at the time, but in hindsight, at scarcely 17, Alina practically was a little girl kid realizing for the first time that her classmates felt entitled to opinions about what she did with her body and affections. I wanted to tell her that it wasn't true, that no one really believed she was a snob about money or shallow or a bitch. I wanted to, but I'd also heard the whispers. The truth is, she said, the only thing I really knew about him is that he made me uncomfortable. I moved beside her and put my arm around her shoulder. I could feel how tense she was as she stared straight ahead. It's not your fault. Her hair smelled like vanilla. Alina, look at me, baby. Come here. <coughs> You're killing me. Alina, look at me. She looked so full of un uncertainty, scared. I put my other hand on her wrist. I'm going to go down there to the, the cabin. She grabbed me by the shoulder and held me like I might fall. It's okay. I couldn't help smiling at her concern. I won't go in. I'm just going to listen for the bells. She studied my face. We were only inches apart. My heart was racing. Besides, I said as I leaned in, I want to. And I kissed her. Her lips were slow to respond. Doubts raced through me. Was she, was she surprised? <laughs> was this a rejection? Had I crossed a line? I felt like Scary Carrie must have been back in Greenfield, but Elena didn't withdraw. Maybe it had nothing to do with me. Maybe it was just survivor's guilt. After a very long couple of seconds, Elena kissed me back. My brain went fuzzy. I almost had to stop. It's tough to kiss with a grin. I was kissing Alina Emini. I slipped my fingers through her wild hair. Alina, who ran track. I could feel my leg pressed up against hers. Alina, who smelled like vanilla and, and smirked when she used to smile. I tried to press my leg between hers, but she kept her legs closed. That fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh... Sans the fucking bitch part, <laughs> and that was, and that I was fine. I was, I was happy just kissing her. Sure you were, bud. We spent the next few minutes on that love seat. It wasn't the sort of first kiss you imagine. No, I it's was manipulative nervous. and gross. It's I not was, good. I was nervous, and she was still. At the same, at the time, I remember thinking it was more intimate than passionate, but that made sense to me. She wasn't in a real good place. Being with her was going to be like building a house of cards. It'd take a slow hand, and the slightest misstep could bring her crumbling down and me... Fucking prison, Jesus Christ. Uh, could bring her crumbling down. My apologies. This is just getting something else. 
She wanted to drive me home before her parents returned from work. As we were getting our, our coats on, I said, Let's see a movie. What the fuck? Uh, can we maybe we pause and just reflect on the story so far? It's... Oh, my God. He's... It's turned into him just, like, baiting all of this shit out of a sad girl. It's just really... It's just really sad. It is interesting. He, he He's not a very the, uh, nice guy. No, no, no. I, I think he's a douchebag. Yeah. Um, he reminds me of the type of, like, fake-ass punk I'd see in high school that I'd, like, immediately see behind their ulterior motives and just wouldn't humor any of that shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, uh, he's definitely a douchebag. I, um... Rooting against him. <laughs> I hope he goes to the house. I hope he sees a ghost he goes, and I hope it haunts him till he kills himself. Ah, okay. That's good. But knowing the story, that's probably gonna happen to Alina, not him. Oh, I think Alina. Like, maybe Alina Always. haunts him or fucks him over and like kills or him. Or fucks him literally. And then and then he says, I have a problem with her not fucking him at literally, this point. Literally literally what is it what does he say? He says um, it's te he says he says I tried to press my leg between hers yes. but she kept her legs closed that's fine <laughs> you immediately follows up that's fine anyway let's let's continue let's see a movie she didn't answer immediately I thought for a second she hadn't heard me I can't I, I just can't I kissed her and asked again but it didn't help what if someone sees us I wanted people to see us. I didn't care what people thought about her. I didn't even give a rat's ass what Fletch thought about her. Please don't tell him. Don't tell anybody. I can't handle how they'd look at me. She broke down. I held her. As I lay in bed that night, I found myself fantasizing about Alina. It wasn't sexual. Yeah, fucking right. Hell, it wasn't even about the kiss. Yeah, right. It was about the most mundane things. Spooning her while we watched TV, holding her hand while we walked down the hallways at school, having little arguments over who'd sit at whose lunch table. Alright, that stuff is actually believable. And that's when I resolved that I had to find the spire in the woods. Right in the middle of fantasy, Alina apologizing for not wanting to sit with my friends and telling fantasy me that I was the most important thing in the world to her. I had to find it for Alina to get her out from under some of the guilt she'd held under her shoulders. And was it really so crazy to think that there might be some truth to it? Even if I was skeptical of the connection to the widower's clock, couldn't Robert Edward Kennan have followed the sound of the bells? Couldn't he have discovered a spire sticking out of the ground? Maybe he, he even found a body. Hadn't Fletched mentioned someone had gone missing from the trailer park? If he had found a corpse, that could have certainly pushed him over the edge. The thought sent a shiver up my spine. The last couple of weeks before Christmas vacation were always filled with midterms and projects, and that year was no exception. It was the last thing in the world either of us wanted to do, but a group project was due Monday. I had to meet Scary Carrie at the library. We were bullshitting while I busted my rear end looking for sources for our presentation on Robespierre. I had practically carried carry through the first half of European history. When I told her that I had changed my mind, I wanted to visit the Quappen. Carrie was thrilled. When do you want to go? Oh, I don't know. Sometime over break, I guess. We should try to figure out everything about them. Who? The clockmaker and his wife. 
Only one of my haunted New England books told the story of the widower's clock, and maybe it was because I'd initially been skeptical that the story was grounded in any sort of reality, but it honestly never occurred to me that there was anything more to know. But if there was a clockmaker, he had to have made clocks. And if there had been a murder, there must be an obituary. Carrie disappeared into the basement where the library kept their uh, microfiche. What the fuck is that word? Microfiche. <laughs> you said it like a dish. Microfiche? Microfiche. <laughs> Microfiche? Is that how you say that? No, I don't fuck. What kind of word is that? <laughs> My a Canadian one. Microfiche? Folks, it's micro and fiche, spelled F-I-C-H-E. <laughs> Lots of pasta, we break down these fucking words for you on, on, on the air, right? God, you microfiche. Know <laughs> you know it. Kept their microfiche? What? <laughs> just continue the sentence. With, with her gone, <laughs> Carrie, just so everybody knows context, uh -huh. microfiche, Jesus Christ, I was able to finish researching our paper in short order, and by the time I wandered downstairs, she'd found out quite a bit. The clockmaker was a German immigrant named Adolf Riefler, born in 1857. He was uh, hired sometime between 1905 and 1907 to construct the clock for the Custom House Tower in Boston by an architect named Robert Swain Peabody. The clock was a failure. In an effort to show up his two brothers, who were also master clockmakers, Riefler attempted to miniaturize several of the motor's components. While the clock ran, it failed to keep accurate time. The clock was referred to by some as Adolf's folly until the mid-1930s, when Hitler's infamy outstripped Riefler's. The bride was Robert Swain Peabody's niece, Amy Lowell Putnam, born 1892. She was just 16 when she married Riefler who was, by that time, 51 years old. I suppose the age difference wasn't that unusual in those times, but back in 1999, when Alina, when Alina was 17, the idea of her with a man in his 50s made my skin crawl. <laughs> it also made me regard Amy Lowell Putnam with more sympathy. Imagine being married off at 16 to a man more than three times your age. Imagine 20 years of marriage to that man waking up to find yourself in your mid-30s, still in the heart of your sexual prime, with a husband in his 70s. Of course she was attracted to other men. We couldn't find an obituary for Amy Lowell Putnam, nor for Amy Lowell Riefler, nor for Amy Putnam Riefler. Scary Carrie took it as a sign that the Putnams, Lowells, or Peabody's all powerful families had covered up the scandalous manner <clears throat> in which Amy Lowell had died. I, on the other hand, chalked it up to the oh god, <laughs> to the microfiche being a bitch to work with. Must be a database or computer of some kind, some type of old technology that I don't understand. I guess so. What we did find of interest, though, was a picture of Enfield in 1938. It depicted a large hill. <clears throat> Jeez, excuse me. <clears throat> you eating bugs? I don't know. It's like phlegm. I have like phlegm in my throat right now. Yeah, man. It depicted a large hill with most of its trees cut down. A tractor pushing aside some debris, and a lone man standing with his back to hiccuping. This isn't gonna go good. <laughs> this is, I'm gonna read this while hiccuping, guys. Continue. No cuts. 
A tractor pushing aside some debris, and a lone man standing with his back to a large colonial building. The large colonial building was the only one still standing. Oh my god. <laughs> the large colonial was the only one still standing, and it had a little tower. We couldn't tell whether or not it had a clock. The old microfiche view screens didn't... Oh god. <laughs> you know what I think will help my, my rough throat? Your rough if I, throat. If I smoke more weed. That'll help the rough throat. I've heard that smoking, because of the smoke, it does good for the organs in your body. You're a smart guy. You sound like a doctor. The, 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 the Microfiche. Microfiche. <laughs> the large colonial was the only one still standing. And it had a little tower. We couldn't tell whether or not it had a clock. The old microfiche view screens didn't exactly have great resolution, but based on its proximity to the hill, it was easy to see how the loose soil could have enveloped it, or another building very much like it. When the floodwaters came pouring through, leaving just a, sp a spire peeking out above the earth. We only found one rep more reference to Adolf Riefler, an obituary published by the Boston Globe in 1941. I wish I could remember the date. It mentioned that he was wanted for questioning in regard to a disappearance, but that was all. Riefler had died in Munich. The cause of death was omitted, but at 84, it was probably just old age. Riefler must have fled the country sometime in the mid-1930s, at a time when the, Germ when the Germany he returned to must have been very different from the Germany he had originally left. I don't know why, but somehow, knowing these historical details made the story of the Widower's Clock so much more plausible. It was no longer a story of a man with an unfaithful wife. The characters defined by nothing more than their relationship to one another. It started to become the story of two people. Amy Lowell Putnam, restless and starved for marital attention, shackled to an old man incapable of giving her what she needed. A good dicking. <clears throat> And then proud Adolf Riefler, obsessed with proving himself after his failure designing the clock for Customs House Tower. Too busy and too old to see what his young wife was up to. And in also need of a good dicking. Mm -hmm. Since her mom had the car that day when we got hungry, Carrie and I had to choose between waiting for my mom to pick us up or hoofing it down to the hometown omitted, omitted house of pizza to grab a bite. Despite the cold, we opted for the latter. Settling into a booth, a hot slice in front of both of us, things between Carrie and me felt right again for the first time since our trip to Greenfield. We quickly we quickly fell into discussing the plans for our trip. We should head out early, she said. The first time Rob heard the bells, it was just after sundown. Yeah, but the later it is, the less likely we are to bump into some park ranger. Hmm. You think there are gates or fences? Well, the roads in and out might be gated, but fences? Nah. The quabbin's too big. Just as the words left my mouth, Fletch popped down right next to me, his friend Murph lingering behind him. Hey, I didn't see you guys come in, he said. How long have you been here? I don't know what I felt exactly. Embarrassment? Shame? But even though there was nothing in Fletch's face to indicate that he'd heard me, I got that feeling you, got, you get when your parents tell you. We're not mad, we're just disappointed. I'd been so wrapped up in the fun of going on a ghost hunt and clicking with Scary Carrie again, 
that I'd lost sight of the fact that Rob Kennan had killed himself. I'd forgotten that the only reason I knew about the spire in the woods was because of his suicide notes, and had actually been happy about the whole thing, while two guys who had lost a good friend, quite possibly because of the spire, were sitting right behind me. Well, I don't know. A bit, I mumbled. You want to ride home? I can take both of you. I really didn't. Sure. Carrie said. Murph had just found out that he'd been accepted via early admission to UMass Amherst, a topic Scary Carrie found intriguing. But I doubt Murph is ever going to make it there because these four are probably all going to go to the spire together and start getting picked off one by one as the story continues forward. M Murph will be first. Murph is never going to get to UMass. He's <laughs> going to get to the <laughs> University of Doom. Doomass. <laughs> University of Nailed it. Quabin. <laughs> the Quabin. Quebec. He's gonna major in microfiche. <laughs> As one does. Like many unhappy high school students, Carrie hung a lot of her hope on the idea that her life would get better in college. She knew she didn't have the grades to get into a top tier school. Hell, she knew that UMass Amherst was a real reach, but she had hoped to get into UMass Lowell and transfer after a year or two. Of course, Murph hadn't thought he'd be, he'd be accepted either. Definitely apply early, he said. Shows them you're serious, and see if you can get a reference from someone who went there. They list where all the teachers went to in the yearbook each year, like half of them went to UMass. Carrie was hanging off Murph's every word, but I wasn't paying much attention to what he was saying. I was too busy hoping against hope that after we dropped Carrie off, Fletch would announce he wanted to hang out with Murph some, and as such, would have to drop me off next. That didn't happen, and we were soon alone together in the car. The second the door closed behind Murph, Fletch dropped his mask, and I knew that he'd heard me. You're going to the Quabbin. After what I told you, you're going to the Quabbin. Yeah. Are you fucking retarded? Fletch was a pretty big guy. That coupled with the hurt and anger in his voice intimidated me into silence. We drove on, listening to nothing but the heater struggling in vain to dispel the cold. After a few miles, I found myself resenting Fletch. Who was he to speak to me like that? And why the fuck should I feel guilty for his sake? He'd lost a friend, and he had my sympathy, but that didn't entitle him to treat me like a piece of garbage. What did you tell me for? Fletch didn't answer my question. He just kept driving. Huh? Why'd you tell me about it if you don't want me to look into it? Fletch tightened his grip on the steering wheel and ground his teeth together as if he were literally chewing over the question. We were in our neighborhood before he finally answered. Who else could I tell? Did you know the school's been contacting the parents of everyone who goes to the special counseling sessions? They're reporting any early warning signs they see in the sessions. You think I want my parents making me see somebody or sticking me on meds? I can't go in there with a fucking ghost story. Fletch's anger had left him. By the time we pulled into my driveway, he looked deflated. I thought you'd believe me. Or could disprove it. Shit, I don't know. It seemed like both Fletch and Alina were looking to me to absolve their sins. 
Alina wanted me to prove that Rob had found a spire sticking up from the ground in the middle of the woods, and it was the reason, reason he had taken his own life. Fletch wanted me to tell him it was just a ghost story. I honestly couldn't say what I believed, but I had to know. I haven't even told Murph, he said. I just couldn't handle it if he blamed me for letting Rob go on his own. What would you have done if you'd been with him? I don't know. Fletch wouldn't look me in the eyes. But at least he wouldn't have been alone. Well, you don't have to worry about us. We just want to try to hear the bells. It's not like we're going to swim out there or anything. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to let you. I had no idea how Fletch, Fletch intended to stop us. It's not like we needed his permission to visit a public park, and I told him as much. Fletch looked at me like I was an idiot. If you're going, so am I, he said. I didn't argue. If you feel guilty for letting Rob go looking for the spire in the woods alone, maybe being there with Carrie and me would help him get over it. As Fletch backed out of the driveway, I realized there was another reason I didn't protest. Scary Carrie. Yes, things that day had felt normal again between us, but I was still gun-shy about spending that much time alone with her, especially on the shore of a moonlit night. Moonlit lake. And, as an added bonus, now we didn't have to worry about getting Ecto-1 for the night. Alina kept her distance at school, especially after I attempted to steal a kiss from her the Wednesday before winter break. I'd left class to use the bathroom and bumped into her on the way back. There were these moments, a few minutes here and there, where she seemed like nothing was wrong, her, where her smile and her laughter would come easily, and walking her back to class that day was one, one of those moments. The corridor was nearly deserted, but just before we reached the door to her classroom, I stopped her. I slid one hand around her slender waist and slipped the other through her hair, through her neck, or towards her neck. <laughs> fucking her his fucking fingers through her neck. <laughs> I leaned in to kiss her and she withdrew from me from my touch as if I was on fire and just like that the old Alina was gone and the broken one was left in her place we stood there apologizing to each other her reassuring me that I had nothing to apologize for and me doing the same before she finally backed into her classroom and shut the door I was thankful Thursday was our last day Winter break couldn't arrive soon enough. I saw Alina twice over the break. Once before Carrie Fletch and I went to the cabin, and once after. Alina's parents had a cabin at the foot of Shawnee Peak in Maine, where they usually spent New Year's Eve. But that year, they decided to go up on the 27th and come back down on the 30th, so Alina wouldn't miss her weekly therapy session. The day after Christmas, she came over to our house for dinner. My parents were wonderful. I, I had warned them about how nervous and anxious she was likely to be. I didn't say a word about the suicide notes or the spire in the woods, but I had told them that Robert had a crush on her and that Alina wasn't coping well with his death. They, they couldn't have been more understanding. Ordinarily, my dad would have been delighted in teasing anyone I brought home for the first time, but he refrained. Instead, whenever there was a lull in the conversation, he teased my younger brother, who had gotten for Christmas this year, among other things, a Furby, and insisted on bringing it to the dinner table. Gotcha. 
Don't let me catch feeding that thing after midnight. <laughs> My brother was... It's, it's Apollo back again, isn't it? What? Is, wasn't that his name? Who? The guy from Left Right Game who made all the shitty jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Uh, <laughs> Rob. Come on, Rob. Yeah, Rob. <laughs> come on, my name's Apollo. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, come on. Don't let me catch you feeding that thing after midnight. <laughs> my brother was too young to catch the reference and looked up, confused. It's only 6.30. Well, it's always after midnight somewhere. Oh, yeah, my I'm name's just gonna Dad. let you go ahead and <laughs> My name's this. Dad. That's fine. My mom, for her part, also resisted her natural instincts. Usually whenever someone came over to my house for the first time, she'd practically interrogate them, stopping just shy of shining a spotlight in their face. It's like she gets, like, the rubber gloves out. <laughs> and you're just like, oh no. <laughs> this habit of hers had been particularly rough on Scary Carrie, who my mom was briefly convinced was on drugs. She should be. After dinner, my dad suggested that I show Alina the TV that I had gotten for Christmas the day before. Hey, sport, why don't you show Alina the old TV we got you? <laughs> He's gun-hansing a bunch. A bunch. It's, not, it's not translating over. <laughs> gun-hansing, yes, yes. The, the TV that was in my room. He was re- He really was a great dad. He tried. He, he wants me to get my dick wet. <laughs> God, it's like Hugh Neutron, but like fucking always smiling and like... <laughs> Jimmy! <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Show him the room, son. What was his name? Hugh? Hugh. Hugh had a hot fucking wife, so you know what? Mm. Good for Hugh. Mm-hmm. Probably has a huge dick. Ooh, sugar booger. <laughs> I really like your family. Alina said once the door shut behind us. I scoffed. Believe me, they were on their best behavior. <laughs> yeah, fuck me, Alina. Drew DeLuca was a firm advocate of the idea that a romantic movie was not the best movie to watch with a girl you wanted to get romantic with. For starters, most of them were, in his view, very crappy movies, and the good ones were in the danger of actually holding a girl's interest. What you wanted was a movie that was pleasant and charming, but light enough that you could miss a good chunk of it without feeling lost and needing to rewind. The sort of movie you'd stumble across while watching TV on a Sunday afternoon and finish even though it were already midway through. I threw in Maverick. Alina sat on the floor and I followed suit, but not before grabbing a couple of pillows off my bed. Her movements were stiff as she settled down on the pillow. I tried not to appear too eager as I got down behind her. Behind her? I read that right, Jesus Christ. I tried not to appear too eager as I got down behind her and draped my arm over her waist. As the movie started, I kept thinking about those fantasies I'd had the night before. Or at, sorry. I'm getting excited, guys. Jesus <laughs> Christ. I'm fucking sweating right now. Oh my god. It is, it is stuffy down here. As the movie started, I kept thinking about those fantasies I'd had the night after our first kiss. About how pleasant it'd be just to lie next to Alina watching TV. Just being near her and nothing more. I was right. But actually being beside her, my hand resting lightly against her flat stomach, I found other ideas even more enticing. Finger in the bus. I pulled myself closer to her, savoring the fragrance that her vanilla-scented shampoo left in her wild hair. My fingers crept slowly, almost imperceptibly, 
imperceptibly of her toned body. <sighs> Alina stopped my hand. Do your parents ever come up here? She whispered, no, we're alone. Actually, would you mind if we just watch this? I haven't seen it before. Oh, no, that's, that's cool, I said, mentally cursing the day DeLuca had been born. I spent the next hour... <laughs> oh my god, what the fuck is this story? <laughs> this, the, the, uh, yay, yay, yay. Um, this is interesting. This is like a toned-down Fifty Shades of Grey we're watching. <laughs> reading. Jesus. I spent the next hour knowing the agony of a man without any fresh water stuck on a life raft adrift at sea. After the movie, my luck didn't improve much. Credits began to roll, and I had it in my head that Alina might feel more comfortable expressing her affection for me if she felt like it, if she was in control. I kissed her neck where I met her jawline and pulled her lithe little body on top of mine. The pressure of her weight pressing down on me was an excruciating pleasure. Her, my eyes rolled back in my head. Conscience thought melted away. My fingers found their way to the bare skin of her lower back. I could feel the slight bumps of her vertebrae raising up through her skin. It was oddly intoxicating. When had I become attracted to spines? I brushed my cheek up against hers and angled my face so our mouths aligned. Her lips parted tentatively. I listened for the subtle changes in her breathing that would tell me when it'd be safe to make the next move. Her breathing deepened. I slid my hands up, up, up her back all the way to her, her satin, oh, satiny bra strap. I had never touched a bra before in my life, and I had only a vague idea of how to guide the hooks from the eyes. I nibbled her ears as my fingers fumbling beneath Alina's shirt. And that's when I felt like she was crying. Hey. Hey. It's okay, look. I whispered while pulling my hands out of her shirt. See? <laughs> she sniffled and turned her head away from me. I was so scared. I, I knew I couldn't be too eager with her. I knew I couldn't press her too hard. She was just in a fragile state, and there I was, thinking with anything but my head. My only defense was that I just wanted to make her feel good. I thought, you know, since she liked me, and she liked my touch as much as I craved hers but I'd thought wrong on many levels. I gently pushed her chin up to look into, the, into her eyes. I didn't mean to push you too fast. You okay? She nodded, and I held her until she pushed her, herself up off of me. Alina paced around my room, doing a breathing exercise her therapist had taught her. I went downstairs to grab us a couple of glasses of water. It was less than the least I could do. While I was in the kitchen, my dad gave me a questioning look and a thumbs up behind my mother's back. I shook my head no and felt like a failure. Once she was calm enough to sit down, we sat on my bed, far apart from one another, sipping the water and talking. It's not you, she said. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry about it. I know you like me. Alina gave a little nod as she stared down at her water. This will pass, I said. People at school will move on to something else and leave you alone. And you can get back to normal. 
Alina got up and started pacing again. My parents don't even think I can skip a session for New Year's. How's that for normal? I hate that we're not going to be up at Shawnee for New Year's. She put the glass down on my desk, her hands as fidgety as her legs. Every year we go skiing in the morning, then drive into North Conway to have dinner and watch the fireworks until my mom gets too cold and wants to head back. That's all I want, and I can't even handle that. What if I found something down at the cabin? Alina stopped, practically mid-step, and she stared at me. I hadn't noticed until just then, but she had bags under her eyes. Would that help? When are you going? Tomorrow. Alina stared at me. The energy in the room had changed. I could practically smell her desperation as easily as her vanilla-scented shampoo. She needed me to find the spire in the woods, and prove that it was the widower's clock. Prove that Rob hadn't killed himself because she broke his heart, but because he'd been haunted by the ghost of Amy Lowell Putnam. And if Alina Amini needed it, so did I. To hell with Fletch. To hell with just hearing the bells. I was going to find the spire. He's getting cocky. And I just don't see it, uh, I just don't see it working out well for him. Oh, God, no. No, no, he's going to meet his end, I think. <laughs> Maybe. I, I mean, he's telling the story, remember, he's the narrator. From, yeah, from when he's supposed But like to I had explained in our last episode, Plot Holes had a dead narrator, so. Um, so now that we've gotten through uh, part two of Spire in the Woods, um, you think this thing is going to wreck him. I mean, I'm left with that assumption, too. I think the He's only so... the only way for this story to go from this point is, like, the spire has to be there, and it's going to haunt multiple people at the same time. It's going to... It's essentially going to pull the Slender movie, you know? It's... Yeah. All four of these kids do the same shit together at the same time, you know? Candyman, 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 and... Um, Biggie Smalls, Biggie Smalls, Biggie Smalls. Um, and then he actually shows up, and then they're, like, hella surprised. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's getting cocky, like you said. The hubris is, uh, prevalent. And, uh, he's, he's just kind of... Well, I, I understand. He's, he's a kid. He's a teenager. And Oh, I thought the same way as a kid. Whenever, sure. you know, whenever I had, like, a girlfriend that was going through, like, a problem or, like, an issue, I would always be, like... You need some, you know, you need some love, you need some affection, and then that's usually sure. where things would lead. Um, this, however, is like serious fucking trauma, and uh, it, I, yeah, she's not it, it just reads me as manipulative and weird, you know, like, um, like, this isn't gonna end well for him. Like, I keep yeah. getting that odd aura of foreboding, like, not only because it's a narrator telling a story from the past, but because... Um, he's older now and has, like, a aloofness to the way he's retelling the story. Yeah. So, like, even if things go well, he is not ending up with this girl for one reason or another. Me thinks she's dead. But, you know, Ooh, this wow. story can go a ton of different ways. Okay. No, not right now in the story. Oh. I just, I mean, like... Oh. By the story's end, I think Alina as a character is probably gonna be dead from something, whether yeah. it's herself or some ghosty ghost. Um, you think she's going to go to the cabin 
With Jerry Carrion? No, I think she's afraid of um, Fletch. So I think the three of them are going to go down, and then something might start happening, and then she might go down by herself, and it might become like a rescue the princess type of situation, um, where like the only thing she has left is to see it for herself. So she goes by herself, and then they feel compelled to go back to kind of save her. I don't know, man. This could go a ton of different ways. Um, But I fucking love it. I think it's great. I um, I I know the high school kid stuff is cliched. Oh, well, it's super cliched. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's yeah. still enough that this is just kind of a filler episode. This sure. is like this is the setup for the what is probably story. going to be uncomfortability for the next. You know, like I think there are ten parts to this story. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the next. What was that? We finished four. The next six parts are gonna be weird. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm fucking excited, man. Um, so let's uh, you know if anyone has any thoughts, if anyone has anything to say or add, you know, feel free to comment or uh, hit us up on the Facebook. If anyone uh, has any recommendations for stuff I should read, I, I know I have the next couple episodes planned out already, but if, um, if people want me to read anything, I'm open to suggestions. There's a lot of stuff that, um, coming down the pike, a lot like Spire in the Woods, where I've just wanted to read something for a very long time, so I'm bringing it to the forefront. It might not be something I had planned, but, like, you know, it's getting read. Like, there are some... There are some good. There are going to be some good episodes coming up where it's just like one story throughout the entire episode, and it's just like a short, quick slice. Mm. Um, you know, think like a "Where Am I" episode or like one of your earlier ones, um, like a Mister Bears type of situation. Which, by the way, again, uh, episode uh, what is it fifty fifty three fifty four Mister uh, Bears Cellar. Um, that that episode is private. <laughs> if you want a copy of it, I will absolutely not <laughs> send it to you. If you email lpcaptaindeath at gmail.com. <laughs> Just gotta keep that reminder out there because it's one of your best episodes. Quit bothering, guys. Okay. So maybe we'll revisit Mr. Bear's Cellar. Episode 53. Maybe we'll go back to the cellar. No, it's not going to be a new episode. It's just going to be a re-edit, re-upload of an, okay. original, of, a, of an earlier one. Um, I've had to do that before for other episodes. I've, like, wanted to add something, so I've gone back and recorded something else. Um, any finishing thoughts for the fans, Tenron Otrin? Uh, be kind. Did I introduce you? I said my own name at one point. Yeah, so... Um, this has been episode 138 with Tenron Otrin. Uh, what am I calling this series? Um, let's let's see, because I, I think I named series fun fun things. Inspired by the Spire. That's what I'm calling it. Inspired by the Spire Part Two, uh, episode Inspired 138. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a good series. Anyway, so about sex cells. Oh, sex sells, man. The only thing that, um, I, the only reason I brought it up is so that you can cut right, right when I say, so about sex sells. (laughs) 
We're cutting your fucking ass ripping goddamn <laughs> hole in the fucking universe. <laughs> fucking. We have singularity here, folks. It's fucking sucking us in. Oh my god. My asshole? Something just happened. Ripped don't let don't let frowns know. Fucking space time is ripped, folks. Jesus, you hear that?